0: We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Um, I have to apologize. I've been delayed. I've been waylaid by a number of things. We put a lot of effort into finishing up another session of our men's group coaching, bio-integration, weight loss code for men. Um, That was a 90-day program preceded by a two weeks, get your labs done, and they did four different kinds of labs. They did a metabolic, they did uh, intracellular micronutrient uh, analysis or assessment. Then they did a hormonal, basically a 24-hour hormonal panel. And then we did some genome analysis So all that stuff. So all that took a while and really had to focus on it. And it was a good group. They're all pretty dedicated. But what I wanted to talk about today was, and what the, the, um, I think the exciting thing is that, you know, now that I start to have my own database of labs that I have run and, you know, what are different about my labs that I have run that other people I haven't run or even labs that I didn't do. When I was practicing in a bricks and mortar context of traditional medicine, even though I was an alternative medicine practitioner, is because when you have your own program, you can design it to have all the tests that you want in there. Clearly, these tests come at a cost, and so it's part of the program. It's built into the program, and you can choose how much is cost and how much are you going to have your time paid for. And so at these earlier stages really over the preceding 2 years for the most part that I was curious about certain labs that I knew insurance would never cover. So I could, I never ordered them before and I heard very little about them and certainly you didn't hear many people talk about them. You could you could look up under PubMed and you would get some research. And so one of them certainly is glucagon but also I didn't hear a lot of people talk about let's say, red blood cell folate levels or methylmalonic acid or, you know, free T4 versus total T4, things like this you can tease out. So over time, your labs that you're offering, yes, are broad, but they're also more refined. You're saying, well, I don't need these labs because they don't really give me additional information. So I thought I'd go through some of these upshots, some of these conclusions that I have uh, personally realized and anybody who's in the most recent of our of our classes I'll call them you know I share it with them it's not like a sneaky secret no we we look at each other's labs we see how they're different we see how they're similar and um I've done labs each time I add another lab to that I I don't know if I'll be adding any to the next go round I'm pretty much at what I what I'd like to look at but what I've realized is this. So when we go through, I think I take it from the top down. So when you look at basic blood work, and so the very basic blood work is what they call a CBC. It's a what they call a complete, or believe it or not, they call it a complete blood chemistry. It's not a complete blood chemistry, but that's what they called it then. So that's your red cells and your white cells. And uh, why would I be excited about any any of this? Well, there's one small test that I probably never really eyeballed much before because it was normal in 99% of the cases. Well, now that I'm correlating platelet counts with you know, their inflammatory markers, meaning primarily CRP and or primarily sed rate, it's very obvious that your platelets, otherwise known as thrombocytes, this is your clotting propensity to your blood. So if you have a lot of, if you have a lot of platelets or thrombocytes, there's going to be a concern there that you're going to clot someplace in a small capillary, which will usually either be your brain or your heart or maybe even your leg. So you'll get a stroke or you'll get a heart attack or a partial heart attack, some sort of perhaps ischemia, which is the dying of cells that were being fed by that particular capillary. Or if it happens in your leg, it's phlebitis. You know, you get those pains in your legs. I haven't had them, so I can't speak to that, but seen enough people who have. So they have painful uh, legs. And it's not a bone pain. It's usually a muscle pain or sometimes even feels like a nerve pain. Anyway, that's what happens when you have an increase in thrombocytes, an increase in clots. They do throw a clot in a small capillary. Well, that's not good, obviously, but it's a strong correlation for inflammatory markers. So when you see people, so of this CBC, which is probably a $10 test, it was $10 back when I was in med school. It's 20 years ago. So it's probably about the same. Um, that in itself, when it's out of range or when it's above what I think 250, which is, I have a sweet spot there. Um, it's direct, consistent and direct correlation. So it gives me a degree. Should I be worried about somebody? And you can measure that number and start, you know, start adding in other aspects of this person. Are they on various medications? Do they have dairy or not? You know, what's their carb? Well, they come to me, obviously, to get off the carbs. But before me, when I took these labs, they might have been carb eaters, Uh, carbivores, as they say, right? Um, And you find that correlation. And then afterwards, that number drops down. So that's pretty remarkable. And uh, as a segue, by the way, for those who are Paying attention to any of the COVID news and the the next medication that's being suggested and so on and so forth, you've heard the idea that blood thinners are now being used to treat COVID, not as a curative thing, right? Not as that like like the thought that the um, hydroxychloroquine with uh, Z was going to be, but now it makes perfect sense given what what is explained about thrombocytes is that the reason you would use a blood thinner because blood thinners are the thing that's very specifically drops your thrombocyte count in your bloods. So they've now decreased the risk of you throwing a clot someplace. Okay. So that now that makes sense. So it's not curative, but when you hear people saying, oh, now they're on blood thinners, what do blood thinners do? Well, they do a lot of bad things, but the good thing they do. And the reason they're used is people who have heart conditions and heart con- and, and, and cardiovascular con- concerns um, are put on blood thinners. And so this is why. So I see that here too, and it's a direct correlation. And so um, it makes perfect sense in the way conventional medicine works. So what are the s- other s- discoveries? Well, I can go through all the labs and I'm, I'm not going to bore you with some things. I want to give you some bigger um, Take homes, and I hope you like data because that's what I like in my spreadsheets of different people and putting their labs there and saying, Oh, isn't this interesting? I can, you know, I now can read. It's kind of like an X ray with me. I can look at their labs, put them on my spreadsheet, and saying, Hmm, so how much dairy do you really have? And so, what do I correlate with dairy? Let's stick to that little theme besides elevated platelets. Um, It's usually IGF, which is insulin like growth factor. And it's a test you can order, obviously. But across the board, you know, they're not out of range. They're just the higher in range. And so I get to spot it's basically a dairy marker. I could do, if I was really just trying to look for dairy, I would probably uh, do an allergy panel. But why waste anybody's money? That's not pertinent to what I'm doing. Um, and so I look at that. I can see the dairy and uh, one doesn't want to be too high in IGF. IGF often, high IGF often is associated with various cancers. You're feeding insulin-like growth factor. Um, and the IGF that comes from cows and dairy is exactly like the IGF that is in humans. So when you eat or drink your IGF from a cow, it, uh, it, it, it initiates, it creates, it, it stimulates even more IGF production in ourselves. So that's where these numbers come from. And that's why it's sort of a compounded. I'm reading your IGFs and I'm reading the IGF you ate (laughs) from the cow in the cheese or the milk or the whatever. Um, So that was pretty interesting. But I would say, let me boil down two areas have percoled up that I would never percolated up that I would have never suspected before and probably the most expensive test that I do and it's a total luxury in terms of being able to do labs is glucagon, you know, and I've had to go back and negotiate with quest, which is I'm working with their retail outlets called uh, Ulta ultra labs. And the cost is as high as $200 a test. And so because I have this long panel, I get to basically get a package deal, right? <laughs> they can come down in their cost. So for that one test, they come down to a hundred dollars. But if I was to say, I just wanted somebody to go retake their glucagon, that's a very expensive uh, request to make. However, it would be nice to do before and afters for sure. So across the board, everybody who has, let me just double check now. um, Everybody who I have tested glucagon for has come in below, as in um, hypo, below their standard glucagon range. So I'll just give you an example. So the range is 50 to 150, pretty round numbers for a range. And so the numbers as an average are 40, uh, low 40s, 41, 42, but in there. So that's low. That's below 50, obviously. So then I have the low, lower, lower of the low, right? So the lower of the low means now those who come in mid-30s, So not only are they below 50, they're kind of below my running average. And then I have the very low, and I've even had somebody below 10. So the question is, why would that be? Why would everybody be low? And there's a couple ways you can answer this. One is, this test has been taken so few times. I mean, if you were to go to your doc, and I'm assuming you have a family doc or something, and saying, so um, would you take my glucagon? first of all, you better double check their spelling and double check they understand what you just asked them to do because you're probably the first patient that ever asked them to do it. Or they might say, I remember reading in medical school 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago that this was of interest back in the 60s and 70s. It, it, it still should be of interest now. And But it was one of those things they only read about they didn't actually go out and do. They didn't take it on themselves. And so they never really learned about it. So consequently, because the demand whether artificial or real, is not there for glucagon. It remains an expensive test, whereas obviously glucose is a huge demand for it. It's $3. Insulin's under 10. So you see this on a per test basis. If it's highly ordered and very common, it's a cheaper cost, cheaper price test. Glucagon has not got there yet. I would love to see the day. So anyway, on these low, anybody who has a low low, so that would be mid-30s to certainly uh, one that I have that's under 10, they also have thyroid problems. Thyroid problems how? Well, um, it's not black or white. I'd like to present black or white conclusions. You know, don't we all want that? That's the problem about practicing medicine. You can, you know, you can read all the articles you want and they give you kind of a black-white scenario. This does this, that does this. Well, in reality, you have people that may be pretty close to a diagnosis, but not really. They don't have all the factors there. Um, and I'll tell you, talk about that a little more. And so, all right. So we said they have low glucagon. And what does glucagon do? Glu- glucagon is the master switch for you to be able to make your own glucose, right? So when you're fasting, where does your glucose come from? Because you're still both creating ketones, ideally, and you're creating glucose because parts of your brain need to have. They are, they are obligate consumers of glucose, and your red blood cells are obligate consumers of glucose. They can't live on ketones, so there isn't a switch for them. So you do have to be burning some glucose for some some organs, some functions, some cells, okay, in your body. It's never one way or the other, but however, most of your body can be fed by ketones. Okay, so if your glucagon is low, it means you cannot make, quote-unquote, make your own glucose very well, We can partially make it well. Well, if you think it through and the people, all these people that I'm working with are insulin resistance, meaning they have on an average high levels of of insulin, right? Which means they have had probably decades of high levels of glucose that drove the high levels of insulin. And the insulin is trying to get the glucose down by storing in the various fat cells and now anywhere, right? Probably the liver and the pancreas and so on and so forth. So that's what its job is, get the glucose out of the blood. Okay, well, it's been doing that for decades. And uh, so the insulin is is high. It's um, multiples of out-of-range high. So in the idea of getting your glucose out of the bloodstream, it also has a relationship with glucagon by saying, absolutely, don't make any glucose on your own. We don't need more glucose in the blood. It's a yin and yang, if you will. So the black and white relationship in a very hypersynthetic way of talking about insulin to glucagon, insulin's about removing glucose from the bloodstream, and glucagon's about creating glucose to put it in the bloodstream, and primarily its source of glucose is, is glycogen. So glycogen that's in your liver primarily, but there's glycogen throughout your body. So it activates, it converts glycogen to glucose just a step away. All right, so it makes sense. All these guys, over decades of having high glucose and high insulin, it would make sense that on a daily basis, they're getting a message of, I don't need to make my own glucose, got plenty, except maybe when they sleep, when they're on a daily fast, okay? And um, that's usually what happens. So their glucagon has been forced to be low on a daily basis that it stops even trying to be normal. So that normal level gets to be lower and lower and lower. And so we're assuming, all these tests are correct, we're not going to go with lab error or anything else, that these numbers get to be lower and lower and lower as an average, just like our fasting glucose gets to be higher and higher and higher as an average, and our fasting insulin gets to be higher and higher and higher over decades as an average. So these people that get to be really low, you know, the... the the people in the mid thirties that I'm talking about and the people under 10 is that the person under 10 has definitely has what they call antibodies to thyroid. So that means that they're headed to either an autoimmune condition, which is pretty common with thyroid. And that will either be a hypothyroid, meaning it's underperforming. Your uh, thyroid is underperforming. So you're going to be slow and le- very lethargic, and um, you're you're probably going to be you know not sleeping well and so on and so forth and kind of always tired. So thyroid's the first thing people think about when they think about fatigue or lack of energy, quote unquote. Okay, well there's that. But what I'm saying is the first thing that goes up before you see the hypothyroid is a rise in the antibodies. It's pretty consistent. So low glucagon goes to um, pretty elevated antibodies against the thyroid, which may or may not, you know. Um, here's the black or white. It's not a yep. It's hypothyroid, meaning your TSH is very high, thyroid stimulating hormone, or your T3 and T4s are low. It's not that black or white. It's in that direction, but it's not that black or white. So, the autoimmune process has started. So now he's saying high at uh, low glucagon the thing that makes your own glucose, is associated with high antibodies to the thyroid. And so the person in the 30s had still high antibodies to the thyroid, not as high as a person in their their, um, below 10 number for the glucagon. So that was pretty interesting. Uh, There's no research on this. So now it begins a question of certainly the connection between glucagon and thyroid, which there is a connection, by the way. And when you think of the thyroid is the thermostat of your body, that's what we're all taught. It's a thermostat. So it should, it should increase your energy, You're burning, right? It should make sure turn it on up. So you're, you're warm enough and turn it on up, you have enough energy. Um, and so if your if your mechanism for making your own glucose is not doing so well, your thyroid steps in and says, hey, hey, we'll help you out. That's how it should be. So it's low and your thyroid should possibly start to crank up. But there's an autoimmune response that keeps your thyroid from working that way. So how does this pan out? Well, some of the people who come to me, right, they go, I want to lose weight. I like your program. It's a data deep dive, data-driven transformation is what we described as that and the four labs that I told you about. So they come in and they want all about that. Well, they may not have the really high insulin levels. They may not have the really high fasting glucose levels and they may have pretty low glucagon levels, and they probably will have pretty high antibodies to their thyroids. So they now are not the obvious candidate for insulin resistance. Maybe it's happened, maybe it's, you know, there's a lot of data we could get, but we're not spending our money on yet to look more deeply. But they are people that really the center of their case the center of what you can do for them is around their thyroid. So one of the things would probably be, and these are fewer cases of the cases that I see, is that, you know, talk to their doc, get them on a thyroid or increase their thyroid dosage. So get their thyroid working correctly as you begin working on these other things, you know, changing their diet and so on and so forth and still going through the same program of cutting back on the carbs and and so on but now you've vastly improved their feelings. You know, they feel good. They're sleeping better. Their mental clarity is there. But really what you've done is you've addressed their thyroid and now they're paying attention and now they really can implement, you know, all the other recommendations, certainly dropping your carbs and understanding the whole macro thing. And they can follow on the their continual glucose monitor and you can track them on what they're eating through chronometer, which is the way we do it. But It's actually really pretty interesting. So you need to take care of the thing that affects them, allows them to be human again. And so that often is the issue. So some people come to me and say, well, I've been on thyroid all my life. You know, I've been on thyroid for 25 years and I'm on a um, hypertension medication for my blood pressure. Well, the story there may go that they, they were overweight way back when. And so the obvious thing was put them on thyroid and who knows if their thyroid qualified 25 years ago or not for for hypothyroid. But the doc put them on the thyroid. They probably lost a little bit of weight by amping up their thyroid and then it normalized. And then they had needed to increase the thyroid again. And so over time, they kept on increasing the thyroid. Well, what happens when you start doing that, you start creating the, the weight itself. The weight itself. May being overweight itself, may create um, hypertension. So you may have to treat that. Or um, sometimes what happens is you're cranking up the thyroid medication gives you hypertension. So now they have another medication they have to go on and it gets progressively more, I will not say ill-fated, but more problematic. And so now your thyroid and hypertension and then hypertension medications have certainly been in the news relative to COVID and Um, the angiotensin blocking receptor arbs medications. So you have all that. So the point here and I'll summarize it that you may want to look for a thyroid issue for weight gain. And that might be the initial step you take in helping these people that come to you or come to me by treating their thyroid. And so that would be verified. You probably see elevated antibody so they're on their way or they're already in an autoimmune thyroid problem, depending with, but yet the autoimmunity is there, meaning the autoantibodies to thyroid are there and there's two different types. So now you've discovered something, you know, so when we try to talk about, oh, life is so easy, you know, um, in terms of simple to understand, we'd like to give the understanding so people do follow a concept, but the reality is you then have variations along a theme of this particular concept. So not everybody comes in and I've, I've had 20, 10, 20, 30 years of elevated glucose. And therefore I have 10, 20, 30 years of elevated insulin. And that's why I'm heavy. That's why I'm obese. That is the majority story, by the way, that that is the majority story. People can be heavy and not be, um, have elevated insulin. So therefore you have to rethink it. And those people are probably going to be the people that have low glucagon and nobody's ever looked there. Nobody's ever looked there. go, check that one up on Google, Um, elevated glucagon. When's the last time somebody looked into that real research? Uh, 60s, early 70s. And that was Dr. Unger. And I can't remember his first name. So he began that, he challenged it. He said that glucagon is really the center of all diabetes. You need to address that first. And I'm starting to think that he's correct. Isn't that interesting? So that was my first discovery, first big different discovery that is not like all the others. I've never heard of this being brought into any particular conference, and uh, there's, in a um, conventional medical doctor, if they discovered this, they would probably either do something to uh, boost up your glucagon, um, or there's a number of ways that they could approach this, but they would probably also start with treating thyroid first, and that would depend on... Um, how their uh, blood pressure is as well. So isn't that interesting? So that's kind of a breakthrough in terms of what we're looking at. Some of the more traditional, you know, I can I can almost guess this person's blood work. That would be they will have high triglycerides, they will have low HDL, and primarily that becomes from if you want to get your HDL up, that means have saturated fats, which are really in your meats for the most part. Your meats being your uh, beef and your pork for the most part. And uh, yes, they're in chicken and yes, they're in fish, but far, far, far less, almost to the point that they're not there. So saturated fats, the ones everybody's told to stay away from actually will increase your HDL. So to drop your triglycerides, and I'm sure everybody knows this already who's listening to this, is you drop your carbs. So those two things, you can be back into the sweet spot of normal. And if you can make those two, your HDL and your triglycerides your HDL triglyceride ratio specifically, you drop that down under 1.5, you've changed a lot of other things. You can go back and check your insulin and inflammatory markers and so on, and they will have all changed as well. So that's kind of the heart of it. I don't value total cholesterol much anymore. Did I ever? Not really. But that should be increasing with time. So people, when I see people in their 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, I expect their numbers to be high 200s, 300s, and maybe even the 400s. And I'm fine with that as long as they have a good HDL and uh, low triglycerides and so on. What what I think are essential labs to take, you really do need to take your inflammatory markers, which is your CRP, and uh, your fasting insulin, your fasting glucose. These are just home-run pieces of information. You can't be without it. I know you've probably heard of hemoglobin 1AC, A- which is like your average percent of elevated um, blood glucose. That's good, That's, but it doesn't give me more information than I already know. So I go, I'll take that because it's everybody can relate to it. It's kind of become the standard. But it's not new information. It doesn't change what I'm going to cha- talk to these people about and how to implement this program. Obviously do your liver enzymes. One of the first liver enzymes that I see starting to get out of whack is uh, alkaline phosphatase. And there's really five different ways that that can get elevated. One is your liver, but it's also your bone and your heart and your blood. So, um, But from my my group of people that I'm looking at, which are 99% insulin resistant, you'll see ALKFOS, at the top or over. And you start changing some of these parameters and you'll see it go back to normal. And that's gratifying for sure. It's gratifying. Um, the other thing I think is really important is to do a, an omega six, omega three, um, fatty acid, essential fatty acids panel. And you get to see the ratios. They have a lot to do with inflammation and, um, It also allows you to open up the conversation to the person about, you know, your inflammation is all about seed oils. Let's just get that garbage out of your diet and let's bring in fish oils and uh, leave it at that. And we talk about C8, but they can bring, bring that in as they will as a condiment. And so that's a very important, and you don't see people doing that. You don't see people getting that panel done. And therefore they're guessing they should have more omega-3s than they really need. So there's that. Other than that, we check the vitamin D, of course, that has nothing to do with, not much to do with insulin sensitivity or not. I mean, it, if you're low, the chances are it exacerbates the situation the way I look at it. So you have to take care of it. It in itself is not going to change the picture without you changing what you're eating. And of course, Exercise is a big deal. So anyway, I thought I would share that with you. It's like glucagon is not talked about, nor is the connection of glucagon to thyroid talked about and the idea of autoimmune with glucagon. Nobody talks about that. That's too far off their panel. But those are the kind of things in my era is that doctors are supposed to take and saying, these are relationships I'm seeing, go check it in the real world, talk to their colleagues about it. Now, of course, you can go online and say, can you verify this? Is this out there? Has anybody else seen this? That's how medicine gets better. Not by regurgitating the same studies that have been been done in the last 10 or 20 years. Those are good, I hope, and without conflict of interest, but looking and seeing some unusual relationships and seeing if you have a bona fide observation, and how many, how many people do you need to see this relationship in to say it's significant? That makes for a good conversation. Okay, with that, I'm going to close this particular podcast. I hope it wasn't too technical, but it appeals to those who really like to look at their data. So I would go out and ask and, and, and totally irritate your doctor and ask for these labs. And if you have any questions on this, if this is over your head, what is my list? I will send you the panel that we use. It's not a secret. Go get it done take care of your own health. You know, this is within your hands. You know, data doesn't have to be dependent on somebody like me to interpret it for you. You go out and get it. You learn to understand it and you can double check it with a number of people. Okay. So till next time, take care. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to Dr. Goldcamp at ketonatropath.com. Many of you have. And so, what I've done with these questions that gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview, or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might've been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody, any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history and evolution and epilepsy and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, as schizophrenia. Or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also just for people and losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto. And so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of, at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? So in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results. And we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief. And these are the things that I've discovered. And I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.